Hey friends, we have a couple of announcements tonight. I'll be doing a few of those. And the first two are ones that we've been doing for the last few weeks and we'd love to invite you to jump in. Every Tuesday at noon, I'm leading a Lenten study through Dr. Amy Jill Levine's book, Entering the Passion of Jesus. And it's been an amazing study. I feel like I've learned so much along the way and we would love to have you join us. Noon on Tuesdays, look for Maggie Keller's text um, and you can jump in on our Zoom call. The other thing is that on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m., Matt and I are continuing with our Lenten midweek check-in, and we are doing Stephen Cherry's book, Thy Will Be Done. It's a Lenten devotional. We're taking pieces of that as we explore the Lord's Prayer, and we're just having conversations with y'all on Facebook Live. So again, we invite you to that as well. We'd love to have you be part of that. The last thing I have for you is our monthly book club. This month we're meeting on March 25th via a Zoom call and we have chosen the book Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson and it looks awesome. So anyone is welcome to join. You can go to the website and sign up and we will see you then. Hey everybody, Maggie Keller here. I do communications here at the table. I wanted to let you know our plans are well underway for Easter Sunday on April 4th. We are crossing our fingers hoping to be in the parking lot of Bethlehem Lutheran. And it would really help us if you could sign up for that service. Let us know that you're planning to come just so we can keep everybody safe and socially distant in the parking lot, but also so that we can make a, a plan just in case the weather doesn't cooperate. You can get all of those details and sign up on our website, thetablempls.com and click the calendar. We also want to acknowledge that this weekend marks one year exactly since we decided to push pause on our in-person gatherings, not knowing how long it was going to be before we could be back together again. And in that time, we have seen you continue to be so financially generous towards us. And we want to say thank you. Your gifts have enabled us to keep going, keep worshiping, keep using all the online platforms that we've been utilizing this last year. So from the team and from the board, we just, we say a simple thanks. We appreciate the ways you've been in our corner this year. If you'd like to donate, you can go to thetablempls.com and click the giving tab. Thanks once again for your continued generosity. And now we'll turn it over to Matt with the message. Hey, good evening, friends. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Mulberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table, and we're so glad that you are here with us again. This is the part in the worship program where I get to be your host for a minute as we try to look at the scriptural story, our old sacred text, in hopes that it might speak and help us out with our own stories. Help us to live up to what we've already attained and be who God called us to be. And so we're going to do that tonight. I'm going to give you a little, let me give you a heads up, okay? A um, little behind the scenes, pull back the curtain. This, what I want to get into tonight, in the past 10 or so years since I started doing this job, I have been vocationally charged to, to grow up and, and to learn. And, and thank God I've been given a lot of opportunities to do so. I've ran into a lot of different scholars. I've a lot of, read a lot of great works, both from like sages on the streets and academics in the library. But what I want to try to touch on tonight in a very cliff notesy, like surface level way is maybe the most important thing that I've learned in the past 10 years, which is why I might be uh, mildly overwhelmed in providing it with you. But I want to say this too, if it gets screwy along the way, if you get confused and the apple wheel of death starts spinning across your face, type that in the chat, let me know. I want to, let's set up an extra space where we can dive further into the weeds and pull apart some of what we're going to go into tonight. Before we get there though, I want to introduce you to a man, Nicodemus. 
John 3. We meet him three different times in the Gospel of John, but the first time we come across him is in John 3. Now, what do you need to know about Nicodemus? Well, he's doing just fine. He is a member on the Sanhedrin Council, which is kind of like a senior court, which is like the ruling religious council in all of Israel. He is an expert in the law, and he makes sure to tell everybody that at every party he goes to. He is a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He is looked upon favorably by the Romans, and the people are putting some respect on his name. The only problem in old man Nicodemus's life is that he's actually more of a mystic than his fellow peers and professionals tend to be. He's more open to the spirit than the religious folks around him typically are which is beautiful by and large, but it's also a problem because, well, now he doesn't really know what to do with this Galilean sage who has stepped into the city and is causing an absolute ruckus. He doesn't get who this man is, this Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know if he should be hailed as a hero or like the target of a hunt. Is he, is he a sage or is he stupid? I don't know. We don't really know what to make our minds of, but his peers all knew. His fellow professionals, they all knew, and they were already preparing for the hunt. They were already ready to go out and find, they wanted to take Jesus out, especially after considering all that Jesus was doing. I mean, had Jesus stayed out in the sticks where he was, you know, turning water into rosé and he was high-stepping on the seas, that would have been just fine. They would have not bothered with him. They wouldn't have bothered him. But the moment that he stepped into the city and stepped onto the toes of the powerful and the elite, they started to step back. The moment when he tore up that temple with his homemade weapon, the moment that he said that even if you try to clean this mess up and you build it all, I'm going to break it all down again, they knew that he had crossed the line. He had gone too far. And they were going to do something about it. And so Nicodemus is torn because, well, this Galilean, he's, he's a problem, but he's also kind of doing something to him. Hard to say what, but there's something in his words, in his non-anxious presence, in his invitational spirit. There's something about this Galilean that is strangely warming the heart of Nicodemus, and he needs to go and figure out what that is. But this is a vocational hazard. Because if he sides with Jesus, if he sides with the hunted, then he's going to be part of the hunt. He's going to have the target that's on Jesus' back also on his back. This would have been not just an inconvenience, this would have been a severe form of betrayal. Kind of like, um, Christian, you know the guy, I was just watching this this morning, the Verizon guy. Did you know that he made the switch, that can you hear me now guy? From Verizon to Sprint, the ultimate form of betrayal. Dirty, so dirty. That's the worst form of betrayal the earth has ever seen. Nicodemus is running a betrayal of that sort right here. This is why when John introduces us to Nicodemus, John makes it very clear. And John is big on symbols. You'll see that from start to stop in his gospel. John makes it clear that when Nicodemus got up to go and see about this Galilean, he did it in the dark because it would cost him too much to do so by the day. And you could call him a coward for doing that if you like, but I won't do that because every decision that I've ever made that I knew was going to actually cost me something be it with my theology, my finances, my career, my passions, or my purpose. Every decision in every arena where I stood moments away from a moment of change, my first step towards that space happened in the dark on the tips of my toes. And the same is true for you. I mean, you didn't just flippantly buy a house when you got bored. You didn't just marry that girl to pass the time. You didn't just, just recklessly move your faith from one that was rooted in phobias and fears to one that looks like Christ. No, you worked out your faith. 
You did some stretching. You worked out your life, your vision, your values, who you are and who you are not. You did so with some sweat on your brow and some fear and trembling in your spirit because it matters. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I could trust your position if you didn't do that. If you had not picked up any kind of scars or growing pains along the way. Now, you work out your faith in that way. We walk first in the dark before we can run wildly in the light. We go first to Calvary on Good Friday before we rise up on Easter morning. Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the Judean moon, and he's looking over his shoulder with every step. Every snapping twig in the shadows, he's feeling like an earthquake erupting in him until finally he gets to that door and he starts knocking and Jesus opens it up. And there is the oil lamps behind him lighting him up. And immediately, before they have any kind of normal dialogue, normal back and forth, Nicodemus does like what I suppose a lot of people do when they get in the presence of famous people. He just starts pumping Jesus' tires, like just showering him in praise. And you, we, we know, or at least I know, that you are as good as it gets. We know that you are from God, of God. We've seen what you do. We like what you do. You clearly are your father's son. And Jesus just almost like puts his fingers on Nicodemus' lips as he's standing there in the doorway with his PJs on. And he says, listen, Nick, it is, uh, it's late at night. You're waking me up. Don't love getting woken up. But I know why you're here. I get what this is all about. Let me get this. You want to enter into the life of God. You want to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, here's how you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to be born again. Now, if you're familiar with this story, if you're familiar, if you've been in church and you've heard preachers preach on this story, this is the part where preachers tend to rag on Nicodemus because Nicodemus' response is, you want me to go back into my mom? And I don't think that's possible. I could call her, but I don't think she's up for it. That seems a little weird. Jesus, you're really pushing me here. That's not what's happening here. Nicodemus is not dumb. Nicodemus is not a foil or a prop for Jesus. Nicodemus is making a profound point that we need to hear. Because what Nicodemus is essentially saying is, is, listen, I'm a Pharisee of all Pharisees. I've given my life to this school of thought. I've taken this, this school of life and applied it into the hard knocks of reality. I've formed a community in which I can be known by and know others through. I have um, conformed my habits, my conducts, the way I talk to people, the way I treat people according to this tradition, this ideology. And to be honest with you, it's been a pretty profitable enterprise in my doing so. I have made a name for myself. I got some status and position from doing this. So what Nick is the same is, is like, if you want me to give all that up and go a different direction, it would literally be as difficult as me climbing back into my mom's womb and getting popped out a second time. That's the ask that you are making on me. And that is the ask that Jesus is making on him. And Nicodemus, he doesn't flinch. Like, that's a hard reality to soak in, but he doesn't run the opposite direction. He lingers a little bit longer. And I wonder if you've done the same thing. Because for me, in many times in my life, and for many people that I know in my life, a lot of people, they dismiss the life that they were born to live because they refuse to leave the life that they already have. They refuse to question the reality that they've constructed and concocted up to this point. And so they never really can take seriously the invitation that Jesus is trying to pull them down. Nicodemus is at that point right here. Nicodemus is wondering, like, I'm standing in this crossroads, in this doorway between me and Jesus and his PJs on the other side, and I'm in between the costly invitation to life and life to the full and the comfortable preservation of death and life as it is. 
Jesus then, he rewards him in that spot with more clarity on this cryptic language. Jesus says, unless a man is born of water and spirit, he is not going to get into the kingdom of God. Now, clarity, in all likelihood, when Jesus says this, Jesus, when he speaks about the water, he is speaking about uh, amniotic fluid. And we know this because later on, Jesus says it's a birth of flesh and of spirit, of below and of above. So Jesus says, what I mean is you got to be born of the flesh, like all babies are born of the flesh. You're going to come out of your mom. You already did that trip. That's good. But there's a second trip that's more into the heart of the matter, into the spirit of things that you don't just get popped out. You actually have to opt in. You have to choose it. It goes from like, I'm assuming my life to actually intentionally assessing my life. I'm no longer running on default. I'm running with a sense of direction. And if you're wondering, Jesus says, how I know these things, well, the truth of the matter is, Nicodemus, I am the only person who's come face to face with the source of all things and have lived to speak about what I saw. I come from the presence of God. And as somebody who's been there and done that, I can come here and tell you what you need to do. And then Jesus says this, and this is kind of where I want to harp in on tonight. Now, context, we are now in the Bible in John 3.15, which is kind of the appetizer to Tim Tebow's John 3.16. And Jesus looks, at Niki, Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That is the same language for life of God, life in abundance in the here and the now. Question, pause, Matt, settle down. For you, when you think about that moment when you were knitting in your pillow, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, when, you were, when you're getting that tattooed in your skin, did you know that in the moment before that moment, Jesus says that I am like a snake that is on a stick? Because the two go together, not just because of the proximity of the 15 and the 16, but also because 16 insists that they go together. I didn't know this actually until I went to seminary. In one of my first Greek classes that I took, my professor, he pulled out John 3, and he said, I want you guys to translate for us by looking just at the Greek, how you would read John 3.16. And we were kind of like, well, that seems like a waste of time. Been there, done that. The job has already been performed. But then we found out that it wasn't performed very well. Because when we started to read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the first word in that sentence is utos, which we translate in our Bibles as so, which we reference in our mind as a matter of degrees. So we read it as God so loved the world is saying that God loved the world. He didn't just like the world. He loved the world so much, like obsessively. That's how much God loved the world. That's not what the text says. That's not what utos means. God so loved the world is not speaking about degrees, it's speaking about a manner of demonstration. God loved the world in this way. Well, in what way? Do you remember that story about Moses with the snakes in the woods? That's the way. So now all of a sudden we have to ask, why is Jesus pointing to this obscure folktale from our ancient tradition to draw a parallel through which we might be able to understand the purpose of his life? that we might be able to understand the purpose of the cross. Well, let's go back to that story. In Numbers 21, we get this text where we're told about how the freed Israelites, they're no longer slaves, they're wandering around in the woods, and, and daily they are kept alive, not with enough water, but they are getting manna from heaven. And at some point, the Israelites are like, could we get a burger instead? Literally, read the text. It is we are sick of the same food. 
day in and day out. They're not sending compliments to the chef at this point. And so God, in response, in the story, God says to, um, he says, uh, he reads like the all caps Yelp reviews from the Israelites wandering in the woods, and he releases on them poisonous snakes to eat them all, which is a different strategy, right? That's different. It's like if you came into my office with, if I was a doctor, and you said, I have a broken arm, and I said, let me take care of that by taking a, a hammer to your toes. Like, it doesn't really fix the problem, but God's like, well, it kind of fixes my problem because I don't hear you complaining about your arm anymore. That's essentially what is happening here. Read Numbers 21. As the bodies are being bitten by the snakes and hitting the ground, it actually works out in that way. The people are no longer complaining to God about their grumbling in their stomach or their lack of tasty food. They're actually now going to God and saying, could you put some cages on these snakes? Can we do something about this? God, in response, he tells Moses this. He says, what I need you to do is make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. Now fast forward from that story to 1,500 years later where Jesus is standing before a man named Nicodemus who is trying to size up this man named Jesus. And to add some clarity to all of his calculations, Jesus says, I am like that snake that saved all of the people from the snakes. Jesus says, I'm like the snake that saved all. I didn't come to, pre to preserve or push forward any more poison. I came to reverse the poison that was being pushed. But of course, Jesus, he doesn't say I. He says, the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man will be lifted up like the snake in the woods. The Son of Man is a Hebrew idiom for the human being. So follow the parallel closely. If it was a snake on a stick that saved the Hebrews from the snakes, it is a human being on a stick that's going to save the he human beings on the ground. The human beings really with the sticks. So now the question is, we try to understand what is this cryptic thing that Jesus is putting forth on this, on this man, Nicodemus, who took a late night stroll, and maybe he's regretting it at this point. What is he trying to say? Who are the snakes on the ground right now? Well, Nicodemus, it's you. It's the Romans. It's the powerful. It's, the, it's all of those who are keeping the domination empire of that time well-fed and well-fueled. Those who are trusting in the eye over the we. Those who are trying to get theirs instead of trying to get good. Those who are trusting that um, loveless power is more important than the power of love. Those who are insisting that those on the top get rights and freedoms that are restricted to those on the bottom. Those people. Those are the ones who are killing the other ones. That is the sickness, the poison of the snakes that is being identified. And so now if we think about it, if those are the snakes on the ground, how do we even furthermore try to clarify what is the snake in their mouths? What is the thing beyond all empires? What is the thing that underroots all of these things that is corrupting all of the people? What is the thing that is killing all the people that we need a son of man to be lifted up like a snake on the stick? Now, if you study, you know, human history at all, and we really bank on uh, the French anthropologist and historian and philosopher, Rene Girard, who died a couple of years ago, his work on this area in particular. But what we've been able to conclude is that from the very start of humanity, the number one thing, if you had to put one name on sin, and, and it's interesting in John, when, when John references Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he uses sin in a singular way. If you have to name what that singular sin is, Girard, and I would also affirm, would say that it's the sin of scapegoating. It's the sin that, that Satan is, is the voice of the accuser, the blamer. That's what the sin is. Accusation, blame. Choosing to put all of your anxiety onto one particular person. 
And so you see this from the very start. We see this out of the gates in the scriptural story. The first human city is built on blood. It is Cain killing Abel. As human societies developed after that, more and more tribes were formed. And when tribes were formed, rivalries grew. And when rivalries grew, inevitably violence arrived. And we have been killing each other ever since. We have been scapegoating. Now, typically how this plays out in, in, in history, and I want you to stay with me. I know this is getting a little laborious, but stay with me because this is very important. Typically how this plays out in history is that when a community of people go through a, stretch, a stressful stretch of time, be it because of a war, pandemic, pandemic, famine, political upheaval, you name it, inevitably what happens is that the people get anxious, they stop trusting one another, and they trade in their peace for some paranoia instead. At this point, when it gets to that point, one of two things can happen. If the group doesn't find a way to calm down, to simmer down the violence, to talk people off the edge, if the group cannot do anything about the paranoia and the aggression that's building all around them, it's going to get violent, it's going to get bloody. Violence breaks out, and inevitably that, that's responded to with more, you bomb me, I bomb you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. gossip about me, I'm going to gossip about you. You take my girl, I'm going to break your jaw. It is this act of violence that is always reciprocated with these revengeful acts of violence, and the thing goes on and on. There was, however, a second path. There is another way to cure the violence and simmer down the crowd. Instead of fighting each other to their inevitable demise, some cultures took an alternative route that is really just as tragic, but it's also much more effective. They decided to put their swords away and stop fighting each other so that they could fixate all of their rage on one particular person that they can now fight together. A sudden war of all against one has delivered them from a war of each against all. And we've seen this throughout history where it's happened again and again. It's happened on the big geopolitical stage. It's happened in our personal lives. But we see this again and again where there is some kind of person, typically a marginalized member, a minority, somebody who doesn't have... Um, a dominant voice in society, that person is accused of terrible things that it leads the other people to believe that's the reason why we're in the plight where we're in. And enough of the accusations start to build up where the only reasonable resolution to the person who's the problem is they need to be lynched. They need to be removed. They need to be killed. And the sad good thing that happens as a result of this bad thing is that it actually works. Harmony is achieved through blame, accusation, scapegoating. The sudden peace confirms the desperate charges that the victim had been behind the crisis the whole time. Which inevitably, if that was true this particular time when we killed this particular victim, then now that's a tool that we can use the next time a crisis comes to. And it's perpetuated from tribe to tribe to society to society. Scapegoating is the one way that we can spare the collapse of all by killing the life of one. And what's interesting, too, if you study these ancient cultures, especially in, like, the emergence of religions and otherwise, oftentimes when people do this, it becomes sacred. Sacrifice, scapegoating becomes a sacred. And how could it not be? Because if you have two people, two tribes that are against one another, and they decide that this person's the real problem, it's not actually anything to do with us, and we killed that person, and all of a sudden the beef is gone, how is that not a magical act? How does that not feel like some kind of spell has been set where all of a sudden all of the wrongs were right because clearly the wrong person was, was, is gone? It's become this sacred act. And, and the Gospels, the Gospels are interesting because the Gospels go out of their way to say that's exactly why Jesus was killed. They don't mince words on this. When Jesus steps into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 
all the people that we would deem to be the villains in the story, they saw one another in the same way. Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, and their constituent institutions of religious and, and political and economic power, they were all at odds with one another. None of them liked any of them. And so if they did not find a release valve for their angst with one another, there was going to be a problem. So in John 11, Caiaphas says what empires have always said. Caiaphas is in the room with the council, and he turns to them and he says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And do you know what Luke says about the day where that dying actually does happen? When Jesus is killed, Luke makes sure to note that on that day, these enemies prior to, Luke says that same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, they had been enemies. So think about this like September 12, 2001, where all of our bitterness with one another suddenly came to a cease when we realized that Muslims were the problem. Or think about this in dysfunctional families when there's an alcoholic that is present. It's easier to pin all of our angst and all of our problems and all of our fixation of what is wrong with us on this one particular person. And what happens in that scenario then is if that person finds sobriety, it becomes a threat to your own stability. We do this all the time. We don't know what to do with our anxieties that we carry with one another, so we find a source that can carry them for us. Think about the story of the Gerasene demoniac. You know the story where Jesus crosses the sea and he runs into that man who's been cast out by his village. He's on the beach. He's cutting himself. He's chained up. He is naked. He has to live there because the village will no longer take him. And when Jesus goes up to heal him, he says, what is your name? You're not a scapegoat. You're not the man. What's your, what's your name? He rehumanizes him in that moment. And then afterwards, when the man goes up to Jesus and he says, can I come with you? Because I clearly can't go back to them. Can I come? We would expect Jesus to say, absolutely. Sign another one up. Christianity, yes. Another one bites the dust. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at this man that he just rehumanized, and he says, go back to your friends and family and tell them the great things that the Lord has done to them. And this is like the weighty task that the church has been charged to do ever since. To go and be an ex-crutch in a society that is going to be very challenged as they try to live without you as a crutch anymore. As they try to see you as fully equal, as a human being, as not the outsource of all their anger, as not the problem, the monster that they made you out to be. Go and stare them in the eyes and tell them that you are not who they made you out to be. And the moment that they can see you as a human is the first step they're going to take to actually being human themselves. And the problem is that we don't want to see them that way. We need to see the victim as the villain. We need to believe that they actually are the scapegoat. Because in order for our system to actually work, in order for the sickness, the poison of the snakes to remain intact... The victim can never appear as it actually it is, as innocent, as at least no guiltier than the rest of us. And most of the time, when the victims were being pushed off the cliff or lynched in a, uh, a park or, or crucified on the cross, there would be enough anger over the injustice of it all that they would start kicking and screaming and cursing and pointing out the people who were doing this to them, that it would affirm to the people who were watching that it was always a problem. You see this with what the crook on the cross next to Jesus. When Jesus is on the cross, there is a crook on the cross next to him who has been stripped of his dignity, his humanity by the Roman forces. The one thing that these Romans couldn't take is the thief's trust in the system that put him there in the first place. In his dying moments, he turns towards Jesus in the middle and he starts channeling all of his rage and all of his hurt and pain on Jesus, mocking him, looking for the one person that he can still dominate 
even though he's dying from a system of domination. With the little life he has left in him, he is still advocating for the system that is putting him to death right there. And this is how Rome always wins. This is how this system is, this is how the sickness is passed from one person to the next. Because if you can totally consume not just a person's body, but also a person's beliefs, their very being, if even, if, uh, if even the victims of the game um, would operate by your rules, then no one's ever free. If even they are buying into the very thing that's putting them down, then nobody is ever free. But Jesus was free. Jesus dies as not just another snake on the ground. Jesus was the snake on the stick. And this snake refused to bite back. This snake, when he's lynched, he's able to occupy this place of toxicity without being run by it the the entire time. On the cross, Jesus refused to hide. On the cross, Jesus refused to reinforce the very weapons that put him there in the first place. On the cross, he refused to give in to the fear and the hatred and the desire for revenge. And Instead, he spent his final breath saying over the ones who were driving the nails into his body and the spit onto his face, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And reading out of that, they have no idea how sick they are. They don't understand how they got bit by these snakes. They just know that they're here to bite. Forgive them, Father, because I won't bite. I'm going to go a different path, and by doing so, I'm going to spare people of this old, violent path and give them something better to glimpse at. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he says those words, he's the snake on the stick, and he's pinned up on the cross. The system never had a chance. The city of Cain, it started to crumble in that moment. The innocent purity of this snake on a stick was on full display, and not once does he take a knee for Rome. The system was exposed in that moment. The victim is not being cascaded as the problem that was always, and he's affirming himself. He's pure. He's still loving just like he was loving prior to the cross. He didn't deserve this. And if he didn't deserve this, and we could hear him speak it as so, I wonder how many other victims didn't deserve it. I wonder how much innocent blood has been shed for the aspiration of a fake unity. For a moment of togetherness by pinting all against one. Jesus pulls back the curtain when he's on the cross and he lets us see Oz for what it actually is. And for some people, the pain of that exposure was too much. In fact, there's a soldier who's next to the cross who is representing the totality of empire and the totality of the domination system, who is standing face to face after driving those nails into Jesus' body, hears these words from Jesus and says, I was wrong. Surely this man was the son of God. And so Nicodemus in the doorway with Jesus and his PJs, which road do you want to go down? Do you want to continue to be the snakes that bite the other snakes? Is that the game you want to play? Or do you want to trust that you are loved? Do you want to trust that for God so loved the world that he became like a snake on a stick? That whoever's going to walk this path out, you're not going to be a part of this violent culture that always ends up killing itself. You're not going to perish. You're going to actually experience life with God. Nicodemus, which road do you want to take? And we know at the end that Nicodemus, he follows Jesus. Will the same be said about you in this time where we have snakes biting all of our ankles? Will you look up and be spared by the snakes on the ground by seeing the snake on the stick and trusting that there is a way of peace 
of collective common good, of trust and love over power that is actually the only way for us. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. When we gather together on Sunday nights and we share in the bread and the cup, we are saying that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. The other piece of that is that we are acknowledging that the unity that we have with one another is around the Son of Love. And the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup, and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. When you drink from this cup and you eat this bread, remember me. That's what we do together, friends, is that we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, and we remember that our allegiance is to Jesus, a scapegoat, a victim. We remember that the unity that we have is through the Son of Love. So please hear these words as you take your bread. The body of Christ broken for you and his blood shed for you. And now together, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.